Another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, October the 5th, 2012. This is episode 993. And because it's Friday, 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 instead of monster trucks, we have monster calls. That's right, your calls to the Think Line, 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. If you're picking your phone up right now and expecting to hear somebody on the other end of it, you're not getting the whole point about a podcast being pre-recorded. We're not live. We're uh, on-demand programming, so if you call in, you'll get a voice message. You'll leave your message, and you get about two to three It's really three minutes. I say two, so you guys will wrap it up and won't run on forever and forget what you're talking about. And uh, you leave your question your comment, and I'd say about 30 to 40% of calls do get answered, as long as you call from a clear area. Uh, with a good signal if you're using a cell phone without a you know large piece of equipment running in the background on smoke break while the guys run the weed eater next to you or with the window down in your car or what have you, you probably will get on if you call a few times, at least one or two of your calls will get on. Uh, also, know what you're going to ask before you call. Try to do this for me. If you're going to ask a question or make a point, condense your question or your point into one to two sentences. Call in, say that first, and then give me your additional information on it, and you will find your call will go so much smoother. You won't get angry with yourself and hang the phone up and call back 14 times before you get your call completed. And it'll save me a few pennies on the 800 number service, so I'd appreciate it. I don't want to pick on anybody. I'm just saying that if you do that, if you say, I want to ask, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and you call in and go, Jack, what I want to know is boom, 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 and you ask it, and then you start giving me information, even if you drift, just edit it out. I just take it off and answer your question. But if you start drifting and never get to your question, I have to uh, screen your call out. Just saying. All right, guys, let's go ahead. Before we get into your calls, let's take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day, number one today, BulkAmmo.com. Hey, look, you got a gun. You got no ammo. You got an expensive club. It's that simple. You need ammo so you can hunt. You need ammo so you can defend yourself. You need ammo in case there's a shortage. And you need ammo so you can train with that weapon because a weapon that doesn't have training to go along with the operator and the ammo is also pretty dadgone useless. So you need lots of ammo. You need it at a great price. You need it shipped to you quickly. You need great customer service and a great selection. So what are you going to do? Go on over to BulkAmmo.com. And uh, you'll find, as far as the common calibers and things like that go there, great pricing, great shipping, great service, all of it in one place, bulkammo.com. Remember, if you're in the member support brigade and you're spending over a couple hundred bucks, which if you're buying in bulk, you probably are, you got a discount coming to you. Make sure you check in at the MSB uh, benefits section to get your discount when you order from bulkammo.com. Next up, ready-made resources. Hey, what more can we ask for from a company than for them to say, this is our name. Our name is what we do, and then they do it. That's what ready-made resources is. All the resources you need for your prepping, ready-made, ready-to-go, point-click buy, great service, great pricing from a family-owned company. Check them out today at ReadyMadeResources.com. And when I say everything, I mean everything. You want tactical? You got it. You want practical? You got it. You want solar? You got it. You want wind? You got it. You want 12-volt stuff to go with that stuff? You got it. You want gardening stuff? Got it. You want canning stuff? Got it. You know what I mean? That's that's what I'm saying. Ready-made resources is your one-stop shop for everything you can want for your prepping needs. Water purification. Got that there, too. 
Check them out today, readymaderesources.com. Long-time sponsor of the show, guys. In fact, both Bulk Ammo and Ready Made Resources have committed to the long-term perpetual sponsorship. They've all been, they've both been with us, one for two years, one for three. That says something about their commitment to this community. Think of them before you buy. Same with all of our sponsors. Pretty much most of these guys stick around for a long time once they become a sponsor on this show because they love serving you guys. I have a special sponsorship program. Not everybody can just get in. There is a long waiting list to get in. Many people, I just say, don't even bother at this point. Really, there's so many people. I just, I, you know, I'll put you on the list, but you're at the bottom of like 20, 30 companies. I'm serious. That's what it's like. So what I, what I want to drive home there is when you think you're ready to do business with one of my sponsors, please go to the site first. Click on their banner in the right-hand margin and make sure you're not dealing with some brand pirate that has a domain name that sounds like theirs. These guys are vetted. They're personally vetted by me. They're, they're vetted by the, uh, the members of the forum, the moderators, and uh, the, it really is a special relationship with, that we have with them. Next up, you can check out TSP Copper for some really, copper, uh, really unique copper rounds, uh, things like the Survival Podcast, The Real Truth About Money, Ron Paul, all kinds of cool stuff there. Again, tspcopper.com. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. It's 50 bucks for your first year, 50 bucks thereafter. Uh, and the day you join, you will get, guess what, over $150 worth of free ebooks. Not to mention discounts from over 30 vendors. Chef Keith Snow's putting together a discount for you guys right now. We should have that up for you by next week. That'll be yet another uh, discount membership uh, for the MSB. Military Law Enforcement Peace Corps, first responders. Email me before you join. Put subject put put in the subject line. Put service discount, and uh, tell me who you are, what you're doing, or who you are, what you did, and I will send you a special discount thanking you for your service. With that, let's go ahead and take the first call of today. Hey Jack, this is uh, Dave again from Central New Jersey. It's um, got a quick question for you. Actually, two questions for you. And one, um, I'm uh, in the process of making my garden a lot bigger. Uh, I'm going to make it now 40 feet long and about five feet wide. That's how. Uh, that's where the area is going to be. It's going to fit good. I have um, the question I have is that I have two stumps in inside that that perimeter. That's about uh, maybe each stump is maybe about five six inches wide in circumference. Um, should do, should I pay to have them removed or should I cut them level with the ground and just uh, you know cause the the bed's going to be about you know about a foot deep would be all right if there is still in the in the garden and two is that where the garden is uh, there's trees that's definitely going to drop leaves in the garden now at the end of the fall am I better off uh, turning the leaves into the soil or uh, removing them I just wasn't sure if the leaves would be decomposing enough by the time spring comes that it would be beneficial or be more harmful than, than good. Um, thanks, Jack. Love the show. Bye. All right, great questions. Two things that look like problems that are solutions. Permaculture at work. Watch it happen. Number one, absolutely do not pay somebody to come remove the stumps from an area that you're going to pile up with a raised bed garden. Yes, cut them off flush with the ground. My only concern is them coppicing back and continuing to be a problem for you as they continuously send up shoots depending on what type of trees they are. If they're a conifer like a pine, it ain't going to happen. Uh, if you cut them flush and cover them with a foot of dirt, if they're like an oak or a, uh, something like that, possibly a maple, not as likely, but maybe an oak, a hickory, anything like that is likely, if it was fresh cut, uh, to uh, be an issue with, uh, with composting and coming back even when well covered. 
One way you can minimize that, get yourself a drill, like a good old-fashioned DeWalt drill, and get yourself a good long drill bit, uh, something that in the neighborhood of a half inch, but a longer bit than you would typically use, you know, you know, one of them little box ones. Go to Home Depot, get yourself one of them about a foot long. Drill a whole bunch of holes vertically down into the stump. Uh, that is one thing you can definitely do to increase water penetration into the stump, dirt penetration, fungal penetration, and uh, even if you get some coppicing, if you start to see any shoots coming up through your, your grow media, whatever you're going to put in there, whether it's topsoil or compost or a mix or what have you, as soon as you see it, just keep cutting it off. It'll die. And then what you're going to have are two great water resources underneath there, all this biomedia underneath there. You're basically going to have stump-based hugel culture, at least in a couple areas of your garden plot. It certainly can't hurt anything. I see no reason to rip it out of the ground. Basically, you have this entire potential ecosystem ready to exist under there to improve your soil health, add organic matter, be a, a hydrated reservoir. No, don't remove them. Don't pay to have them removed. Cut them as flush as possible. And I really do recommend drilling some holes deeply into them, uh, large diameter holes, five, you know, half inch, five eighths, something like that. Uh, and I think that you'll get a much quicker infiltration of water, fungus, and, and, and detritus matter into those stumps and less problem with them compassing back. Even if they're like, even if they're pine stumps or something, they're probably not going to compass on you. You're still going to be better off if you go ahead and drill them out before you cover them up. On the leaves, let's start looking at things and say to ourselves, what does nature do? So in, in a forest, when leaves fall to the ground, does somebody come by and turn them under the ground? And the answer is no, of course. What I would be doing if I were you is it, not just worrying about leaves falling on the garden. I would be taking as much leaf matter as you can and putting it on the garden. If you want to kind of accelerate its breakdown, what you can do is rake your leaves into great big piles and run your lawnmower over them and pile all that ground-up leaf material, but don't turn it in. No, just leave it on the surface. Um, one thing that's going to happen, especially in New Jersey, that you're going to get that a lot of people see as a bad thing, that's really, in my view, a good thing, is you're going to get at least some layering of snow on top of there, moisture penetration, covering, compaction, and, and you go into spring as that starts to melt off and the soil's wet, all your little soil creatures are going to be coming up there and feeding on those leaves. Those little soil creatures in particular that I'm thinking of are earthworms. Those earthworms are going to eat those leaves. They're going to go and do what worms do, which is make more worms and poop. That's about the only two things or three things a worm does. It eats, it poops, and makes more worms. That uh, is a huge source of nutrient for you in your garden. Additionally, um, you now have a layer of mulch that you didn't pay for. If you want more mulch, mulch on top of it and leave it there. Use multi-layered mulch. How do I plant my seeds? If seeds can get through dirt, they can get through leaves. But what you can do is as you plant your seeds, you pull a little area away of leaf so that you get down to your exposed dirt. You, you know, this is for your fine seeds, right? Like your lettuce and stuff like that. You go an eighth of an inch into the soil or something like that. You cover it back over and uh, leave your leaves off until you get your, your seedling up. Once your seedling gets up, uh, just push your, your mulch back in around it if you feel you needed that. Beans, peas, stuff like that. Man, you know what? The beauty of a mulch is it almost is the planting media for you. You pull it back where you, you know, so if you want to do a furrow, let's say a straight row of beans, like, you know, conventional garden, pull a furrow back of your, your leaf mulch and your other mulch and 
you should really dig down into the dirt maybe a half inch and then put your, your beans spaced out however you want them and put the dirt back on it. But I've done this, and it's worked just fine. I've pulled back the mulch, threw it right on the surface, and put the mulch over it. And, you know, a seed covered by mulch in contact with soil has intrinsic intelligence, and it knows what to do. But you've got this beautiful free mulch falling on the ground. Use it. Uh, don't don't worry about getting rid of it in spring. For God's sakes, that's when you're going to need it most because you get all the spring rains and all the water charging up the ground. And without the mulch, as soon as the sun comes out, you start to lose the reservoir. So hold it in with mulch. So that's what I would do in your situation. Great call. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Steve from New Jersey. I got a question I think would be good for uh, Steve Harris. I wonder if you could talk about radiant barriers for attic cooling. Uh, did some research online, uh, and one website talked about using tin foil instead of aluminum foil instead of the uh, commercial grade radiant barriers. So that got me thinking how they worked, and if it was a just a reflective surface, if it was necessary, if. Uh, recycled mirrors or possibly even uh, reflective surfaces from uh, uh, recycled sheet metal might do the same trick. So if you could answer that question or explain how radiant barriers work for an attic, I'd really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for a great show. Bye. Well, that is definitely a great question for Mr. Stephen Harris. So, uh, Steve, let's... Uh, Let's hear your answer to a question on radiant barriers. Steve from New York, thank you very much for calling into the expert panel. I've uh, got your question. No, mirrors won't work. Mirrors are for visible light. They're not for reflecting uh, thermal radiation, which is infrared radiation, which is non-visible light. You're going to have to use mylar or you're going to have to use aluminum foil, shiny side out. These are called front surface reflectors or first surface reflectors. The surface reflects the heat and the light. The actual surface of the aluminum or the mylar reflects the heat and the light. It's called a first surface reflector because there is no glass to go through. If you had mirrors, then the heat has to go through the glass, hit the mirror, go back through the glass, and the glass is IR opaque, which means it absorbs all of the heat and it gets warm. If you think of those super movies where spec ops and satellites and police are looking at heat images of people through a house and through windows, those are myths. Thermal imaging cannot see through a window, let alone through the wall of a house. Glass is thermally opaque, just like a brick wall. So you don't want your heat going through a brick wall, hitting a reflector and going back through the brick wall. It just creates a heat source inside your roof of your house. Now... Sheet metal won't work. It has to be a polished stainless steel. It has to be very reflective. If you got any scrap stainless steel sheets around, let me know. I'll pay you a lot more for them than you're going to put for putting them into your attic. Now, commercial grade, quote unquote, radiant barriers are just large sheets of mylar sheeting. And they're thin, like a space blanket, but bigger on rolls, so it's easier to lay it all out. It's the practice to put this thermal radiation on the floor of your attic to keep the heat from getting into the room below. But this is done by people who don't know much about thermodynamics. It makes sense. Put it on the roof and prevent it from getting into 
well, the roof, the, the room below. What you really want to do is you want to put it on the ceiling of the attic. You want to staple it to the roof rafters that are above your head and reflect back that radiation as soon as it gets in. Now, in thermal heating, there's radiation, which is what you're trying to reflect. You know, that's the sun shining on you. That's, radi that's radiation heating, radiant radiation heating. There is conduction, so that's like you putting your hand on something and you feel the heat or the cold. You touch an ice cube, that's conduction. And there's convection, and that's heat being moved by a fluid. Heat being moved by air, heat being moved by the ocean, that's conduction, okay? Your forced air furnace at home that burns natural gas, turns on the blower and heats the house, that's convection heating. So a radiant, radiant barrier only prevents radiation heating. It's no substitute for insulation in your attic. It's an augmentation to the insulation in your attic. It helps make it better. So you just can't replace it with reflective stuff. you got to have the pink stuff or ground-up uh, newspaper, the cellulose insulation, or the soft-touch uh, stuff from Dow Chemical, which is really awesome, or my favorite. So what you really want to do to insulate your house from the heat of the summer sunshine and really save money on your AC bill is you want to use my favorite type of insulation, which is spray foam. You want to spray foam the roof of the attic. That would be the inside top of the attic, the part right above your head, right below the shingles. This keeps all of the heat out of the attic. And if it's not in the attic, it won't come down into your house. This is the smart place to put the insulation. If you also still put insulation on the floor of the attic, that's even better. So typically you spray foam the, the, the attic rafters and you'll have your in-place pink insulation on the floor of the attic. So this is double insulation. It works great. And no... Despite what everyone says, and of course everyone who says this has never done it, and I have, this will not hurt your shingles. God, everyone always says, it's going to hurt my shingles. No, it's not. In fact, it's going to extend the life of your shingles. Your shingles are better off being warm all the time during the day than they are to go through thermal cycling if they're really hot from the sunshine. Then the wind blows and they cool down and they get really hot and then rain goes on them or the temperature changes. You know, think of it. You'd rather have your shingles at one temperature or would you rather have them expanding and contracting, expanding and contracting as the wind blows and they change temperature and clouds go overhead and everything else. No, it's better to have insulation behind them. Of course, you won't find one roofing guy who will tell you this, but again, that's because roofing guys don't use spray foam insulation and they haven't done this. You'll have to call a company in to spray foam your attic. They'll have a truck outside with some long, thin hoses, but they do a really great job. These guys are all pros, and they do it very well. Yes, I have done spray foaming on this scale with a large spray foam gun. It's awesome. Okay, It's cheaper to have a truck come than it is to get the cans from Home Depot and do it yourself. <laughs> that would get pretty expensive because you need about four inches of foam stuck to the inside of your rafters. Now that you got four inches of foam, 
I mean, it's, it sticks like glue, okay? Now you get four inches of foam glued directly onto the uh, inside of your roof. You got a composite roof. It's like having half a surfboard, you know, fiberglass and then, and then insulation. So it's incredibly strong. And this would mean something if you're in Tornado Alley or you're in Hurricane Company, Hurricane Country. Um, you'd keep your roof <laughs> when everyone else is being torn apart. If you don't have enough insulation in the attic floor, that's where below your feet, take it out and have them spray foam the floor at the same time they do the ceiling. They'll give you a really great price on it. Now you got a super structural house and you got the best insulation in the roof as well as the best insulation in the floor of the attic, which is the roof of your room. If you're building a home from scratch and you happen to be doing stick and frame construction, which is two by fours and drywall and stuff, then spray foam the inside of the entire house, okay? Don't roll up the pink stuff. Don't blow in the ground-up cellulose. Um, do entire spray foam. The entire house will now be a composite, very strong, airtight. That's the number one thing in energy savings is whether it's summer or wintertime, you want your house airtight. Seal all the gaps and all the leaks, it costs a bit more up front to do spray foam, but again, you get your money back in the savings quickly, both in the winter heat and in the summer AC. Now, if you don't want to spend the money on spray foam, there is something else you can do. I have a book, <laughs> which should be my, my line like, you might be a red deck. My favorite line is, I have a book called... How to Really Save Money and Energy in Cooling Your Home. And it's in the Heating and Cooling section of USH2.com. But I'll put a link to it at the very bottom of my website, solar1234.com. That's my website I give out all the time. It's got all my radio shows on it. And at the very bottom, I put the links to the stuff that I do for the panel questions. So the very bottom of the page of solar1234.com, I'll put a link to my book on USH2. It's blue and white. You can't miss it. And it's called How to Really Save Energy and uh, Money in Cooling Your House. Now, this book has to do with putting water on your roof very gradually. It takes the heat away from the roof and prevents the heat from getting into your attic. If it's not getting into your attic, then it's not getting into your room. Instead of having a roof at 140 degrees or more in the sunshine, you'll have a roof at the dew point of the water evaporating. So you want enough water going down your roof so that it just barely does not make it into the rainwater gutter system. This book shows you how to do this and all of the fundamentals of how your house gets warm. Once you see the diagrams, what I said about spray foaming will be so easily apparent, it's amazing. Diagrams in the book are well worth it on their own. Now, what is not in the book that I'm going to tell you here that a good customer of mine has done, and you can probably even do this without the book, and he's done this better than anyone else has ever done who's gotten this book. And he's in Florida, okay? So this works where it's hot and humid. Is he uses hydroponic water timers and hydroponic water valves. And every five minutes, he'll put 30 seconds of water on his roof using 
um, a black hose with small holes holes drilled into it, like one-inch poly tubing. Black, he'll just drill holes in it every foot or every six inches, and it just leaks it onto the roof. This, this has drastically lowered his AC bill in the summertime. He tells me that many days in the, in the, in the summer in Florida, he does not even turn the AC on. That's how cool it keeps his house. That is what a little technology and a little water can do for you. Yes, I have done this on my house when I was in Michigan. I put a soaker hose uh, on the top of my roof line. I turn the water flow on real low. Yeah, it makes a difference big time. And no, it won't hurt your shingles. It helps them stay at a constant temperature. Again, I'll put the book up. And you can see at the very bottom of solar1234.com. It's got blue and white cover on it, and it's called How to Really Save Money and Energy in Cooling Your Home. Steve, I hope I answered your question and uh, gave you the long answer about everything that you wanted to know. I love the expert panel questions, guys. Call them in on a regular basis, and I'll answer them right away and get them back to Jack. Have fun, guys. All my best. See ya. Well, great stuff from Steve Harris, as always. Remember, if you want a question for a uh, expert panel member, whether it's Tim from Old Grouch on ham radios or bug-out vehicles or Darby Simpson on livestock or Steve Harris on alternative energy, uh, Keith Snow on cooking, uh, when you call your question in, as soon as you're done, as soon as you hang up the phone, email me and say, Jack, I just made a call uh, for so-and-so, and I called from number XYZ PDQ, you know, whatever that number is, one, two, three, four, five, and that way I'll be able to pull it out and put it in the queue and get it over to the appropriate panel member. Uh, let's go ahead and take another one of your questions. Jack William here in the Amarillo Panhandle of Texas. My thought is, I found 19 acres for $12,000. He's got it broke up into three sections. 6.14, 6.33, and 6.88. For 41, 42, and 43, 12,000 for the three of them. I've got about 3,500 in silver. That is my wad. This land, I look at it and I see permaculture just oozing out of it for me. I want it. I can afford one small piece and finance the other, but I really want all three. Your thoughts, William and Amarilla. Good day and God bless from the Republic of Texas. Bye. Okay, there's actually a lot of things going on here, but I want to try to help you out and help anybody in this type of a situation out by let's start off with just the financial aspect of making the trade and see how we have to view making the trade. So some people would say, you have $3,500 worth of silver. Don't sell that and buy land. It's really not what you would be doing, okay? If I take thirty-five or four thousand or five thousand dollars, whatever it is in silver, and I sell it to buy land, what I've actually done is exchange the investment. Instead of holding silver, I'm holding real property. So that's the first thing we need to look at. So that, and it doesn't sound like this, this caller has an emotional attachment to either of the uh, investments, but it's something that. 
helps people break this mentality of once I have silver, I need to never let go of it. Silver is a medium of exchange. If you can't exchange it for something, inherently it has no value. It doesn't produce a dividend. Uh, it doesn't heat or cool your house. It doesn't feed you. The only reason we acquire and hold silver is because it's a medium of exchange and we expect it to perform at least at the level or beyond the level of inflation to protect our wealth. So there's a point at which we make the exchange. Now what concerns me is when you say that is my wad. Um, that could mean that that's all my wealth. If that is all your wealth, I don't know that I feel very good about this for you right now. If you mean that is my wad of silver and I have other cash, holdings, etc., and I won't be completely dead broke living paycheck to paycheck, then I would be okay with you making some sort of a purchase here. It sounds like since financing the additional land is an option, that is indeed the case. So now we got to look at the next layer. The next layer is, do you plan on managing this land and living somewhere else, or do you plan on eventually living there? If the answer is you plan on managing the land and living somewhere else, unless you are very close to this land and can get out there uh, routinely three, four times a week, you're going to have a hard time in that environment doing a whole lot with uh, permaculture. You're in a semi-desert, arid environment. It's an edge desert environment in many ways. It is actually an optimal environment to demonstrate the capabilities of permaculture. But if you're planning on throwing a mobile home on there, temporary, eventually building someday, whatever, uh, but you're going to be there and use that land as a dwelling, you're going to have a lot more success with the development of the property. Uh, than just trying to do it on its own. This is, you know, you're not in New Hampshire or Vermont where it rains every dadgone day or every other day during the summer. And even if it doesn't, it's so humid it waters itself when the sun goes down. You're you're in a place where, especially in the first couple formative years of the system, you're going to need to do intensive management to get it off the ground. So that has to come into whether you do this or not. Now the next question, do you buy a six-acre parcel or do you buy all 19 acres and finance the rest? I think the first thing you have to ask yourself, when you look at these three parcels, if you were to buy one, which one would it be and what would you do with it and why? When you do that, you may start to realize that some of the rest of the land, you want it just because it's nice to have land without having other people around you. And that it's not really about optimal use of the land. So if you can cherry pick the best piece, that goes a long way. Um, you know, looking at the slope, looking at the orientation, looking at what's around it, looking at access to utilities. You know, is this place going to be completely off grid? If so, it doesn't really matter. But if it's going to utilize utility at all, and uh, you have a piece behind another piece, well, then you got a road easement issue. Uh, if you take the frontal piece, you're closer to the utilities. If you take the rear piece, you may have to grant easement to the eventual property owner behind you. So all of those things go into which one would you buy if you were only going to buy one. The next thing, six acres of land put into permaculture is more work than most people can imagine. And I get a gut feeling if I'm wrong, I'm, you know, I apologize in advance. I get a gut feeling this would be new for you. That you're not someone that's permacultured a whole bunch of other stuff. You're, you're somebody that has a basic understanding of the concept. You want to learn more. You want to get, pr get practical hands-on experience. You want to go do it. That's wonderful. I totally recommend that. But if that's the case, you have no idea what 19 acres is from a work standpoint to really utilize it to a high degree. Though it's land and it's valuable. 
right? So my initial instinct is you say, what I can afford is that's what you buy, what you can afford. I would also ask you, would it be possible then if you bought one parcel to maybe buy some sort of or build some sort of small dwelling to live very economically bare for a year or two and then put something more substantial on it, something like a small mobile home, even a used one, a small cabin, even a used one, to build something. I don't know what you're comfortable with, because some people would say, that ain't going to happen. I do it. My wife, I, I put that out to my wife a long time ago. I'm like, why don't we go find about 10 acres that we can buy dirt cheap as long as I can get you know internet connection and stuff in there, and let's just buy some piece of crap old mobile home to throw on there, live in it for two years, save up some money, and then build a brand new house for next to nothing in, in, in debt. And her response was, I'm not living like that for two years. And so there's other dynamics and not just what you're comfortable, but that would be an option. You know, even a, a decent sized travel trailer or something like that, even for a year debt, you know, mortgage free for a year saves a lot of freaking money. Plenty of people are putting twelve, fourteen, fifteen thousand dollars a year into their mortgage, and and if you did that for a year or two, that's a substantial payment on the construction of a permanent residence. So that would be another way to look at it. Um, as far as buying the entire piece, that is something you have to make based on your economic. Uh, you know, how strong are you economically? If you sell the silver, is there anything left? When you say it's your wad, is it your silver wad or your total wad? If it's a total wad, I think the only thing you're looking at is a single parcel right now. And I'm still okay with it, and I'll tell you why. You're exchanging one investment for another. Um, and I might even, if I were you, talk to the landowner about an exchange of silver for the property directly. Uh, that might be beneficial to both of you, and he might be very interested in that. Now, I've got one more option for you that you can look at as kind of a hedge. What if you said, I want to buy an option to purchase the other two parcels, a 24-month option for $1,000? And you come up with another $1,000 to do that with. This is how that would work. You give him $1,000. You agree upon the purchase price in the option. You write an option contract. For the next 24 months, you can buy both parcels at an agreed-upon price or either one of the parcels at an agreed-upon price. He gets the $1,000 right now, and he can spend it because he has no way he can lose that $1,000. When you choose to exercise your option, right, the $1,000 applies toward the purchase. So let's say the, you only decide to buy one parcel, and it was $4,000. Well, you'd give him $3,000 plus the thousand he already has. You'd take the second parcel. He can now sell the third parcel once your option expires. Uh, or you could even exercise that option. So let's say a year from now, you come up with three grand. Say, I want to buy the second parcel. Here's three grand. The thousand dollar option money goes against that purchase and you can still hold the third parcel for another 12 months. It, is it going to be 24 months for that amount of money? I don't, it's negotiable. He might say, screw that. I don't want nothing to do with that. Right, But it is an option. It's a way that you can tie up land for future purchase at a significantly reduced rate, just like anything else. And it's possible, and I wanted to at least give it to you as, no pun intended, but an option. All right, with that, let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Eric from the cornfields of Indiana, and i got a curious question for you. You might actually uh, know the answer, or your Google flu, I know, is stronger than mine. Um 
let's just say I know somebody that works in county government, and for whatever reason, this person leaves out butter for weeks at a time on her desk. And you can see where I guess she eats it or whatnot. And I did check it's uh, salted sweet cream butter, so it is real butter. It's not vegetable oil. Uh, it is salted, but, I mean, she's even using uh, great value, which means we got it from Old Wally World, China Mart, or whatever you want to call it. So it's not like this is really high-quality organic butter. And I was just curious, is that because uh, butter left alone will, um, you know, ferment like a develop its own acidophilus or other uh, good bacteria strains. I'd never heard of that. Uh, it doing it on, on its own, just uh, left out. So I was kind of curious and see what you could find out. Appreciate it, Jack. Uh, appreciate all you do, and uh, have a great one. Bye. The reason is simple, and it's something that's very hard for modern Americans to accept. With very few exceptions in a modern, you know, society or in a northern climate, butter does not require refrigeration. That's why they made it in the first place. If you leave a cup of milk fat sitting out, you know, just a cup of cream, basically, that you make milk out of sitting out on the countertop, and you leave it there long enough, it starts to get pretty gnarly. And, uh, you know, you can make clabber out of milk and things like that and yogurts and different things. Butter, it's not about fermentation. It's about the process of making butter and, and the way the fat uh, basically congeals when the butter making process takes place. So when we make butter and then we separate the butter from the buttermilk, that lump of butter, salted or not, salt is about a flavor enhancement. It's not a preservative there, is going to be very shelf-stable without refrigeration, right up into the point where about it really has a hard time holding its shape. So if you're... If you're if you're in a northern climate and you don't really kick the heat up very much in the winter and your inside temperatures around 65 degrees, that butter's gonna, you know almost be hard, almost be hard to spread on unless it's going on to like a warm piece of toast, right? If you're sitting at about 70, 75 degrees, the butter's gonna be nice and soft, easily spreadable, and weeks at a time, no problem. Again, this is why butter was initially made. So we go out, we milk the cow. One of the products we get out of the cow is butter. Butter is a high-calorie, high-fat, highly nutritious uh, food source. With some, uh, And we can then take that and leave that on the shelf. And then you start and you look at it and you go, now this makes sense because go try to butter a piece of bread with butter out of the refrigerator. You go, and this is why when people freaked out about butter, you know, the big thing that made margin takeover wasn't, Margarine takeover wasn't health. That's a, that's a myth. It was when margarine came out and, and people had already been brainwashed to putting the butter in the, in the refrigerator all the time because they thought they were going to get sick. Then margarine came out, it was a little cheaper, and you got it out, and you took it out and you put it on your bread, and it just spread all beautiful. You went, this works better. And then the health message came with that and all, but that's a big part of it. So you can leave butter on your shelf. It will be just fine. If it is getting to a point where it starts to almost liquefy, where it won't hold its shape, it will not hold up as long as and be fresh. But you'll know it's starting to go bad. right? So at minimum, what you can do if your household uses a lot of butter is get yourself a butter uh, container, something that will cover it and keep bugs and stuff off of it like that, and put out a stick and use it till it's gone and then take another stick out of the refrigerator. This is a much more sane way to utilize this fact 
uh, then they just leave it out all the time. You know, if it's 90 degrees, it's going to really get disgusting and gross and things like that. I'm not saying it's to keep, leave your butter sitting on the picnic table outside or something like that. But the shelf, room temperature, butter is incredibly stable, uh, far more stable than things like margarine, which have a whole laundry list of health impacts of why we shouldn't use them. The, the, that's another myth that margarine is healthier. I think that's pretty much been killed now, and most people admit that, even people that have a hard time admitting it, um, that, that butter is really a healthier choice. They'll just say, minimize your fat intake, as though fat is the problem instead of sugar and complex you know, sugar and, and uh, what am I like, junk food and uh, all these additives and chemicals and things like that. No, butter is a great nutritious thing, and yes, it's shelf-stable without refrigeration. It's why uh, it, it was come up with in the first place. It was a way to allow a milk product to last longer in an era where there was no refrigeration. Let's put it this way. Uh, butter predates electricity by a long time. There's a reason. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Robin San Diego. Uh, I'm calling here about hogs. Um, wanting to get as much information as you can provide about um, space needed, like how many acreage I'm going to need to say if I want to run 10 hogs. And if I do have 10, uh, approximately how much do you think... Uh, I'd be able to harvest like per year. How often would I be harvesting? Is ten too many for personal use, or am I going to start looking for you know, places to sell this stuff and uh, stuff like that? Uh, hopefully, one day I'll get to worry about that. I have a surplus of pork, would be great. But for now, just looking for um, planning my property to set it up. Uh, want to do something kind of like uh, paddock shifting, but. Not sure about the size of the paddock and uh, what should be on the paddock as far as uh, you know permaculture growth that's already you know in place. Uh, anything you can help out, you know, kind of get me pointing in the right direction to, to have some happy hogs here uh, in the near future. Uh, I would appreciate it. Thank you much. Definitely a great question for Council Member Darby Simpson. Uh, this is one that kind of fell through the cracks. Darby had answered it. I thought I had included it in an earlier show, and I hadn't. So uh, let's hear from Darby now, and uh, let's get this question answered. Hey, Jack. This is Darby Simpson with Simpson Family Farm calling in to answer Rob's question about how many acres he would need to raise approximately 10 hogs and, and how much space would be required. Um, Rob asked a really great question, and not to try and sound like a permaculturist, but it really does depend on a lot of different factors. He didn't say what type of breed his hogs would be or how big they were currently, what type of land they would be run on, how much forage they would have access to, if there would be nut trees, if they'd be foraging only, or if he'd be supplementing with grain. So I'm going to make some assumptions in answering his question. Um, and kind of let him know what I do and how much space we use for our hogs. And the first thing I want to point out is that we've actually switched from a more of a pasture application to raising the pigs in the forest. Uh, pigs are, um, na their natural habitat is in the forest. And so this year we've really started using more of our deciduous forest here in central Indiana to raise the hogs. And what we've seen is that it gives them a lot more shade, keeps them a lot cooler even on really hot days. And we do have a lot of, of native uh, beech and oak and walnut trees that in the fall will give them some additional things that they can forage and eat, which cuts down on the grain bill. Um, 
I like raising them in the forest for all those reasons. Um, they get about a third of their intake from the land, uh, so long as we can rotate them on a pretty timely basis. And at any given time, we'll be using about a quarter of an acre to a third of an acre uh, for anywhere from 10 up to 30 hogs, depending on how big they are and how fast they are going through the forest that's available. We kind of let the land tell us when it's time to rotate. We'll use four or five 100-foot sections of, of portable electric fence and just move them around. You can also do this on open pasture land, but if you don't have a breed that grazes really well, they're going to do a lot of destructive things to your grasses and in some instances could render it where you wouldn't even want to graze it with animals because they'll ruin the grasses or they'll dig holes where a large ruminant could actually hurt itself moving around. Uh, if he's going to supplement with grain, which I'm assuming he's going to, um, you'll want to use a, a good pre-mix from a company like Fertrell or Helter Feeds. And a good rule of thumb, if they're getting about a third of their intake from the land, is that you're probably going to need about three pounds of grain to get one pound of gain. And here at our farm, we can actually add about 50 pounds per month. So if we get a 50-pound piglet, um, you know, and we rotate them every, you know, 30 to 60 days maximum. If they're smaller, 60 days. If they're larger, 30 days. Sometimes more, sometimes less. Uh, we can add about that 50 pounds a month, and we'll have them for anywhere from four to five months. Pigs are really efficient getting them up to weight using grain and forage to about 250 to 300 pounds. After you hit 300 pounds, it takes more pounds of grain to get a, a pound of gain. So that's when we decided it's time to take them in. His other question was, you know, how much meat was he going to get? Would 10 hogs be too much for his family? I have no idea how big his family is. Unless he's feeding a small army, 10 hogs are way more than any family is going to need. Uh, we see our hogs dress out at about 60% from live weight to actual package weight in the freezer. So a 250 to 300-pound animal is going to give you 150 to 180 pounds of meat when you harvest it. Basically, you harvest them when you're ready. If he's wanting to, to do it all at once, then, you know, raise them all at one time and keep one or two for himself and sell the rest, so be it. Maybe he wants to get six in the spring and six later on in the summer or, or, or whatever, and or maybe just get all different sizes and just take them in when they're ready. My advice would be to, to either raise ten all at one time that are the same size and market some of them and keep some, or maybe do them in batches of two where you get, get five at one time and five at another time. Should he be selling it? Absolutely. The really interesting thing about hogs, they're, they're very much a herd animal, and they run in packs, so they're very social, they're very intelligent, and you wouldn't just want to have one or two. They actually do better if you have groups, and 10 is a great size. I would actually encourage him to keep one or two for his family and then sell the rest in bulk to, to friends and, and family members or neighbors or whatever at a reasonable price, but to make it so that he can at least put his meat in his freezer for free and make it worth his time to do this and, and supplement his income without actually having anything that he needs to worry about reporting tax-wise. If he basically shows that he raised 10 hogs and he sold eight of them and, and broke even, um, you know, then he, he's probably not going to have any tax issues there. Of course, he'd want to control the CPA, but, you know, that's just something for him to think about. Uh, I really love answering these questions, guys. Keep them coming. Um, if you want to learn more about us, you can check out our website at SimpsonFamilyFarm.com. Thanks for allowing me to come on and answer this question. Take care. 
All right, great stuff from Darby Simpson. We're really getting a deep show today. This is part of why I put the council together and uh, you guys asking more questions and spreading it out. Uh, you guys love to ask Stephen Harris questions. I understand uh, why, but we have him on a lot. So make sure you throw us some questions for Keith Snow, uh, maybe some for Joe Nobody, Frank Sharp Jr. Those guys, too, would be uh, happy to answer your questions. And uh, more for Darby because he's a great source of information. Let's go ahead and take another call. Jack, uh, this is uh, G-Town Dude from the uh, Survival Forum. Um, got a, a quick question that, that maybe some of your other listeners may have an interest in. I live in a small uh, farming community, um, one stoplight town between two metropolitan uh, cities. And uh, my question is is regarding housing. I um, love where I'm at. I have a uh, ranch. I am on the border of, of town. And my question is, should I consider possibly leaving this area? Um, and the biggest reason my thought even drives towards this is as I listen to um, a lot of people that they, they keep telling me to get out of the real estate. And, and uh, you know, my thoughts were to, to sell my house and, and then begin renting just to get out of the, the real estate complete market completely for a while to see how things go. Um, and the reason for my quick uh, determination on this is is that I am not upside down in my, my house uh, payment. Um, so, you know, I could get some equity out of this this house if, if I do this now. So, and, you know, I worry that I I don't want to be one of those that are upside down in, in my housing and uh, be stuck with it. But I also look at this as, you know, if, ever, if everything does go bad and the markets do go really horrible, that I need a place to live. And should I remain where I'm at? Or should I look towards rain? Thanks, Jack. Thanks for all you do. And uh, have a great day. Bye-bye. All right. So the, the reality is you're asking me if you should exit a position that the majority of the people that listen to this show would kill to get into. Uh, to own a house with equity in a small town uh, that you love living in, that you can afford to pay for, should you leave that? Only if you're not happy being there anymore. The, this is something we have to start getting a grip on, guys. The only reason you're considering this is fear. Fear sucks. I know I put out a lot on the economy and where we're headed. I'm telling you that dark days are ahead. I'm also telling you at the same time, it won't be the end of the world. It'll be a shift and people will have to be tough, harden up, make hard choices and get through it you are much more likely to be able to get through it in a strong position in a small town with a good community than you are in a rent house living in a house that the guy that owns it doesn't give a flying shit about you. So my answer is, no, I wouldn't leave, based on what you've told me. If you're in that position and you want to be somewhere else, you want to be in a different situation, then that's freedom of movement, freedom of choice. It's the foundation of a republic. So, yeah, go, but don't make this decision on fear. I'm going to leave that be a short answer on this one because that's just the vibe I get out of it. 
I wouldn't leave if I were you. I'm trying to become what you are. Right now, I'm kind of am, but we're not happy here because the wife's not happy here because we're too far away from the family. So we're trying to do, and you're in Texas. I mean, you, I, I'd like to switch places with you if you were a little closer to where my family is. Uh, so no, I wouldn't leave personally. Now, again, if there's other reasons driving this, if this is just your justification, And inside your heart and soul, there's another reason for this. Then come to grips with that, address it, and determine whether or not it's enough motivation. But don't do it out of fear, and don't let fear be the excuse for something that's deeper. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. I got a question about China. Um, you know, you look at the way the U.S. has risen uh, largely through, um, I mean, recently through uh, odds fiscal policy, and then uh, Japan was rising through odd fiscal policy, and then they uh, kind of suck and win because of it. Um, what do you see as being the real source for China's kind of meteoric rise, and is are, are there fundamentals sound? I, I have a feeling that they're not, but I can't put my finger on it, and you're the financial dude, so I'm curious what you think about it. Thank you very much. Well, that comes in nicely with a video I put out yesterday on the blog, Why QE3 Will Work, Part 3. And again, not saying QE3 is a good idea. And I'll warn those of you who haven't seen the video yet, when you watch it, you'll see the first part of it going, I am not saying! And it's for the YouTube community of armchair ass cracks that make comments without listening to videos uh, that that's there. So you can skip maybe the first five minutes of that video, but this, the last part of it goes into the play that China is is making, and I'll summarize it uh, here, are the fundamentals sound. Short term, no nation in the world has sound fundamentals uh, for a, to deal with a crisis, because we're all in the same bed together. We're all in a debt-leveraged-based commodity, uh, a debt-leveraged-based debt economy, uh, where the money is debt. China's fundamentals for long-term recovery after the global Uh, depression that is going to hit are much more solid than ours. China's play is this in a nutshell. First of all, understand the Chinese central bank is the, is the Chinese government. It's not like our Federal Reserve where it's a private institution making its own decisions that can take what it has and leave if it wants to or put it somewhere else if it wants to and tell, can tell the government, here's the big middle finger, go screw, we're going to do whatever we want to. The Chinese government, when the, when the Chinese central bank does something, the Chinese government's doing it. So if, they, if, the, if the Chinese central bank buys gold, the Chinese government and therefore the nation and the people of China are buying gold. Understand that first. Second of all, China's buying lots of gold. Uh, next, China's buying lots of uh, silver and promoting silver ownership among its people. Chinese citizens now have the option, once they earn their monopoly money, to go to a bank in China and deposit it as silver into the bank. China did this because they know that their average wage earner does not earn anywhere near enough money to make banking on gold practical. So they legalized silver ownership quite a while ago and then began to encourage it. Where the U.S., you can't do this. Right, Rob Gray and the Lakota Nation are trying to make it somewhat feasible to do, and maybe they'll make it completely feasible to do, but there's a lot of hurdles to it. Um, but this is really based on the, uh, the gold account. This is available through uh, Australia that any citizen in the world other than a U.S. citizen can have where you just have your money deposited in the bank and it turns into gold and you whip out your debit card and spend it and your gold is exchanged for cash wherever you are in the world. The Chinese have done this with silver for their people in China. So the Chinese citizen is converting 
you know, with regularity to silver as an exchange medium. And the Chinese government's holding both gold and silver. The Chinese government's buying agricultural land. It's buying timber land, and it's buying exclusive contracts for food exports from its neighbors. So smaller nations like Miramar that produce more grain, more rice, more food than they consume, net exporters, China's going to them and saying, we'll buy the lot of it for the next 10 years. Here's agreed upon pre-pricing schedule, etc. So China's fundamentals are solid for recovery. We're all going down the hole, though, including them. Because the, six, the key to your question is, what is the why are they in this meteoric rise? It's a couple things. One, huge population of people, right? Contrary to what you've been told, large populations do spur economies, okay? That's one thing. Number two is us. Us. They loan us money, we spend it and buy most of what we buy as far as imports from China today. So we, they have this, this, this money circle going on. We're their biggest customer. We're their biggest credit customer at the same time. So we're buying their stuff, and that's an issue for them. And this is the part that people don't, you know, everybody wants to talk about how evil they are, but they have a problem too. Let me put it to you this way. If I owe you $1,000, I have a problem. All right. If I owe you $100,000, I have a problem and you don't. You have a reasonable expectation with my level of wealth and income to collect $100,000 from me, and you can force the issue. If I owe you $10 million, you have a problem. Because I ain't got $10 million and you can't get it from me. You can go to court, you can get angry, you can do whatever you want. So when you owe somebody a trillion dollars or more, they have a problem. So they are very smart, and this is where their fundamental play is, is they know this paradigm has to shift. No one's sure of exactly how it's going to shift, so they're using this to position themselves for after the shift. Whether they force the shift to happen or they wait for the shift to happen is yet to be seen, but they're positioned for the shift. The other part of their meteoric rise, and this is where people are so married to the concept of American exceptionalism, they won't admit it. They're hungrier than we are. Their people are hungrier than we are. Their, their businesses are hungrier than we are. Their nation is hungrier than our nation. There is some exceptional things about America, but here's the truth. And this is, again, something nobody wants to tell you. There is exceptional components to every nation. There's exceptional things about Italy. And there's things that Italy can never stand next to the United States with and say that they're as good at as we are or that they've done as much as we have with. And there's exceptional things about England, and there's exceptional things about Australia, and there's exceptional things about the Philippines, and there are exceptional things about China. And the reality is that the, the United States has been the, the world champion for a long time. And like all world champions in any sport, in any activity, once you're champion for long enough, you get lazy, you stop training, you stop working as hard, and there's always a new Challenger. You see it with running backs in the NFL, receivers in the NFL, boxers, MMA fighters. You see, see, when you can see something in a microcosm, it always works in the macrocosm as well. And if you ask me, and you know, you can say about the slave labor and things like that, and yeah, that stuff happens in China. But folks, it ain't like they tell you on the TV. It's not like every other person is in a slave labor camp. It isn't. There's plenty of people just out there working, running businesses, running street vendor shops in China. They will work harder than you will. And I know somebody like, no, they won't. Okay, how about this? 
I know of one individual that came to the United States from China. His brother owned a donut shop. And he actually owned several donut shops. This man went to work for his brother in a donut shop. He and his wife would work in the donut shop every day, and they slept there, and they bathed in the sink at the donut shop. Slept on the floor in the back of the donut shop. They did that for a year. They saved up enough money to eventually buy that one shop from his brother. Okay? This is a true story, by the way. Then they made it, they had, they finally had their own business. They didn't have to pay a piece over. They weren't working for a wage. They could keep all of the money that they made from that donut shop. All right? They made a decision to stay there and earn enough money so that they could buy a house for cash. They did it for two more years. They bought their house for cash. Eventually, this man ended up with many donut shops and went into other businesses, and he's very wealthy today. The only part of that story that's not true is it's a little bit older than today, and the gentleman was from Vietnam. But I'll tell you what, you probably could find a Chinaman that's done the same thing and willing to do the same thing. And if you say you'll work as hard as they will, will you do that? I'm not saying you should. That's what we're competing with, though. That's the work ethic that we're competing with when we're competing with the Chinese. The attitude... Right, The tiger mom attitude where nothing's good enough unless it's an A. I'm not even saying it's the best thing for the student or the kid, but that's what you're competing with. You want to believe that we're the best, but then you don't want to hear about what the people that are trying to compete with us are doing, and you want to ride it off. Meteoric rise for China, it's a lot of things. It's a population. It's a large nation with a lot more natural resources than we realize. It's a very smart, intelligent people. It's a nation that's disbanded much of its communism and moved toward capitalism. It's a nation that's made us a major trading partner and has become the number one supplier to the largest consumer in the world, us. It's a, it's a, it's a huge work ethic. It's a government willing to abuse its people at the same time, and they're abusing a segment of society and using them as the real bottom feeders. They have a stratified class system, just like we do, but instead of letting their lowest of the lower class ride a free ride, they're forcing them to work for next to nothing. I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying it works, and I'm saying that's what we're competing with. And now they've taken the abundance that this has created economically, And they've positioned themselves to go forward in the world with full understanding of what's coming. You want to know why I say they're going to be the economic leader of the world by 2020? There you go. Anyway, check out the video for more about what we're doing wrong, they're doing right, and a lot of other things uh, about what's coming to the economy. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. It's MSB member Sandy R. here from north central Louisiana. My question today deals with junk silver and fractional coins. In episode 540, you suggested that eBay once was a good place to purchase junk silver. What source are you currently using? Since today's spot price of 90% silver is almost equal to the closing spot on silver, silver bullion, does it make more sense to buy fractionals instead of junk? I'm new to this and hope that you can help me wrap my head around all this. Thanks for the great podcast. It's always a highlight in my day. 
Well, first, eBay's still a good place to buy silver. The beauty about eBay is every seller on uh, eBay has reviews. And when you see somebody with a thousand positive reviews and one negative one, one guy's an ass. That's what that means. And if you see somebody with like 20 good reviews and 20 bad reviews, nobody's probably buying from them anymore. So if you have a seller on eBay with a lot of, a lot of positive reviews, they're a safe seller to buy from. Um, and this is the, let's start out with the first problem that I get over and over and over again. I don't want to buy silver, but I'm afraid I'm going to get ripped off. Blah, 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 blah. Every good dealer, every good, uh, seller on eBay is safe to buy silver from. All right. Unless you're buying a 40 pound block that maybe somebody could have drilled out and filled with tungsten, you're going to get what you're paying for. If you weren't going to get what you're paying for, they wouldn't be in business. They wouldn't have a thousand positive reviews or a company like our sponsor, JM Bullion, wouldn't be online after years of being in business if they were selling people something fake or ripping them off. Nobody's going to rip you off, and if you pay a dollar more an ounce at point A than point B, and that really disturbs you, you don't know why you're buying silver in the first place. If the economy falls apart and we fall back on silver as a monetary instrument, the last thing you're going to give a shit about is whether you paid a dollar more or less an ounce. So that's the first thing we just got to get out of the mindset that this is difficult, that this is complicated, that buying silver is any different than buying anything else you buy every day without even thinking about it. Do you shop around? You're going to buy a set of binoculars. They're going to be from Leupold, right? And you, you go on online and you find four or five places selling them. The cheapest one is someone, they don't really look that great. The second cheapest one is a good solid dealer. You make a decision on the spot, you buy them. You don't sit around for days trying to figure it out. I know, caller, that I'm kind of sound like I'm beating up on you. I'm not, and this really isn't a direct response to your question, but it's an opportunity to say something I have to say over and over again so people quit overthinking this as though it's something more complex than it is. It's like buying anything else. So I had to get that off my chest. Now, your question on fractional versus junk, all right? Junk, and I'll tell you why. As Rob Grace goes, no, Jack, don't say that. You know, he sells because he sells fractional silver, and so do a lot of other dealers. The reality, though, is minting coins is expensive. You, you look at something like an AOCS silver round that's selling for 4 or $5 over the spot price of silver, and you go, why? Because they have to cut a die, because they have to mint it, right? Because they have to buy the silver. They might have had to buy the silver today, mint it tomorrow, and sell it to you next week, and then silver's dropped two bucks, and you still have to make a profit. Minting coins is inherently risky and expensive, The metal can drop during the manufacturing process, and I might at some point, if it drops enough, have to eat it. But the minting process costs money. You're not going to buy newly minted coins for spot price, and if you think you're getting ripped off because the person selling it to you wants $3 over spot, you're not getting ripped off. You're not getting ripped. The guy that's doing the work, that's minted the coin, that's taken the risk, has to make a profit or he cannot serve you. Got it? All right, again, I'm not getting on the collar. I'm getting on the total mindset around silver that is just mind-blowingly away from everything else that people purchase. It's an irrational behavior. All right, now, but this explains the, 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 the reason I would say junk over fractional. If you buy fractional 10th ounce silver coins. It costs the person selling them to you almost, almost as much in the overhead cost to stamp the coin. 
Boom. The die cost, the, the process run, the purchase of the bullion, buying it in 10-ounce slugs instead of 1-ounce slugs. In the end, it cost almost as much to make to, to produce the 10-ounce, the tenth of an ounce as it does the ounce. What does that mean? That means I have to put the same premium on the two. So I have to put a $3 premium on a tenth of an ounce coin or a $3 premium on a one-ounce coin. Which one's going to work out better for you? And the smaller I fractionalize, the bigger this becomes evident. That's why it's not that much different by the ounce to buy a one-ounce bar or a 10-ounce bar. You're talking cents, cents on the ounce, right? It's not that big of a difference. As you start going sub-ounce, that's where the, the whole economic dynamic change. Now, how does that play out with junk silver? Well, when I buy 1960 uh, silver Roosevelt dimes, right, from a, a dealer that sells junk silver, uh, even if they're relatively uncirculated or something like that, there's not much of a premium on them. The minting process was done by the United States government in 1960 at cost of 1960, and it's so old and so long ago and so low comparative, and it's already been circulated as money, that it's gone. So now I'm just buying the silver as is. Or when I buy a new fractional silver piece, I have to absorb the new cost of manufacture. Right? So this is why I can go out and buy an old cast iron skillet from Griswold that was built in the 1950s that's better than anything I can buy today. And in many cases, I can still get one at a flea market or something like that or a shop for less than buying a new skillet, even though it's better. Because it's built in 1950, the manufacturing costs are 1950 manufacturing costs. It's already been out and been implemented once. It's already been paid for. Now I'm just buying the commodity. I'm not paying the manufacturing costs. It's the same thing. Right? Now, the other advantage. When you hand somebody a one-ounce silver round that's, that's that got like a mint mark on it or a silver eagle or anything like that, it's very familiar to people. Fractional silver that has something on it that it's just not as... Not as readily accepted in the marketplace yet, anyway. You hand somebody a silver Roosevelt dime, if they know anything about silver, they know what it is. right? And it's got the assurance of the United States uh, markings on it, which you might not think matters, but it doesn't even in a collapse wood. So that's why I say junk over fractional new produced silver. There's just a better bang for the buck, and if you want sub-ounce silver, it becomes even more the case than when you're looking at one ounce. When you start looking at things like buying four or five ounces in like one ounce coins or one ounce bars, uh, it's not that big of a savings to go junk versus newly minted. Fractional all day long. Let's take another call. Hello, this is Nicholas in Iowa. And my question is, how do I get my money for my 401k most effectively? I don't want it in the stock market anymore. And I was told that there's some government things that uh, make it impossible for me to get it unless I have a hardship. Um, yeah, thanks for everything you do. You're doing a great job. Bye. Okay, this is something that we just keep coming back to, and I'll keep covering it because so many people are in this predicament right now. Most 401k plans have had changes in the past 15 years to where I remember back in the 90s, if you wanted your money out of your 401k, if you were willing to pay the taxes and penalties, you didn't have to leave your job, you didn't have to do anything, you just get it out. You couldn't roll it to an IRA, but you could just say, give me my money, and they would give you your money. Now, most plans, and there's a whole, it's to me, it's like a whole open-door conspiracy to keep money tied up in the market, in the bond market as well. I've talked about this before, but it's almost unheard of now that you can get your money 
out of a 401k without leaving your job. I know very few places where that's the case. As long as you're going to keep your job and keep working for your current employer, your money's stuck. The hardship thing, what you're going to end up doing at some point if you try to pull this off is to basically borrow against it, owe it back, and in the end you're going to end up screwed. Right, So don't borrow against your 401k. I think it's a terrible idea. I think it's an idea that people that want to sell you silver and gold and other things often tell you is a good idea because they don't give a shit once you do it and they get the money. It doesn't matter that you have to pay it back. They get their money and they're gone. All right, So I think it's a terrible idea. So what can you do? What you do right, is you sit down with your 401k and all of the investment options in there, and you find the safest investments in there. And right now it's either going to be a cash fund, uh, a money market fund, or something that's probably pretty leveraged into short-term U.S. Treasury bonds. And those are about as safe as anything. And I know people are freaked out that the U.S. government's going to go bankrupt and blah, 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 blah. I'll tell you what, if the U.S. Treasury bond is worthless, so is the dollar, so it doesn't really matter. My problem with the fact that they've replaced the cash and cash equivalent funds with uh, bond funds, U.S. Treasury funds, and things like that is why they're doing it. They're doing it to force money into the government coffers, to force the debt to turn over more, to captivate this piece of huge piece of wealth held up in these 401k plans. But that's the best you can do for now. If you ever leave this job, and maybe the fact that you can't get satisfaction out of this is a reason to look for a better job. And if you find one when you leave, then they have to turn it loose. Then you can roll it into an IRA. At that point, you have many options. You can do anything inside an IRA. There's no investment out there that won't you can't that you can't do with an IRA really. Especially a pay, like a bond, a stock, an ETF, things like that. You can even do real estate if you want to. I don't know that it makes a lot of sense, but you can. So that like opens up all these other options that you don't have right now. And then maybe you want to leave it tax deferred. Or at that point, you can say, I'll pay the interest and penalties or what have you, whether, depending on whether it's a Roth or not, will impact how that works out. You can take your money out. But for those of you in this position now, that's all you can do. That said, I want to tell you, if you watch the video I show, I put out yesterday, with as long as you have the ability to execute rapid movements out of one fund into another, there's a good case right now to be in solid growth and income equity funds right now. The stock market will continue to go up as long as they keep pumping money into it. If you want to understand that, the show's going really long today. I can't go deep into it. Watch the video about QE3 that I did yesterday. I'm also trying to get Greg Manorino back on to talk about where we agree and where we might not agree on what's going on. So that'll be coming soon. But I'm going to tell you, the Fed's buying a bull market right now. A stair step up, and it is going to crash in the end and crash and burn harder than it ever did before. That doesn't mean you can't do okay on the way up. You just got to be really careful and keep the situational awareness high. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Greg from down in the uh, Houston area in Texas. Uh, got a question regarding a new technology that I saw the other day that's called a uh, sandpoint well. I'm not familiar with the concept. Came across it in a couple of forums. And as I understand, it's really not new, but it's new to me. Wondering if you could kind of tell me what that uh, installation process is like, if you have any experience with it, and kind of what the drawbacks and benefits of that kind of system are. I'm looking for a backup water source to my current city water, and I uh, would look forward to any comments you have on the idea of putting in a sandpoint well on my one-and-a-half-acre homestead. Thank you, and uh, thanks for a great show. Bye-bye. 
Okay, a sandpoint well is just a shallow well put in in an area with either sand or very easy to penetrate soil that can be done with very low-tech equipment, and therefore it's very affordable. That's that's what a sandpoint well is. So, like, for instance, when my grandparents lived in Florida, and my grandfather was like a freak about that. He was one of the lawn people, right? I don't know. That was the other, like, the one grandfather that taught me all about gardening, this guy was the, the I want my yard to lay a golf course guy. So water being relatively expensive, as far as he was concerned, he put in what amounted to a sandpoint well with a basic pump, and he used that mostly for irrigation. It worked just fine for that. The biggest problem with sandpoint wells is that they're shallow, and that means 25 feet or less. And with a lot of the chemicals and toxins and things that have been dumped into our ecosystems, that they're more likely to have things like heavy metals, radioactive elements, and things like that in them uh, than a deep well. That's it's coming off more of an aquifer type environment. So this is a this is the standing water table. So that this is where just about every drop of water that hits the ground that ends up under the ground instead of being evaporated or run off ends in in these these water tables. So these are generally in coastal areas far enough inland that the water is fresh. Many times they're also high in sulfur, so they have an odor that can be taken care of with filtration for drinking. And if it's for backup then it's better to have water than no water, right? And for irrigation, they're probably fine. South Texas, you know, the problem with South Texas is there's a lot of radioactive isotopes even in the water coming out of your your uh, your, your spigot, chromium something, chromium-235 or chromium-90, something that came out a few years ago that is heavily prevalent in South Texas, Southeast Texas specifically. Um, so my concern that it would be in the groundwater. So... A way to get an idea of the quality of that water, if you can find anybody around you that already has a well, ask them if they would just give you some water and you would want to pay for testing and you would agree in exchange for their water to give them the results of the test. As long as they're close, you're probably going to get a reasonable approximation of the water quality that you could expect. But for a low-cost secondary water supply, it's a great way to go. Um, if you were asking if it's the water that I would be willing to kind of live off and drink day-to-day, -day, I'd have to do very thorough testing of the water that would be coming up out of my ground before I would make that decision. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is James from Alabama. Uh, just calling about a recent article I read on TerraDaily.com. Uh, it discusses the uh, Arctic ice caps melting. And uh, according to the scientists, uh, there's been more ice melt than there's ever been in a million years. Um, I know you're not a proponent of human, you know, caused ice melt, human caused global warming. But I wanted to get your thoughts on this and uh, see what you thought about the issue. Uh, to me, it sounds like it, you know, it could be an issue in the next 20 to 30 years. If, if it was something you could take a look at and give me your thoughts, I'd, I'd much appreciate it. I'll keep it short and sweet. Thanks, Scott. Love the show. Have a great day. Bye. Well, my stance on, on let's say, climate change independent of, of, of trying to make CO2 the villain is it happens, and it's always happened, and it always will happen, and it is a threat to our way of life. That if we have drastic changes in our climate, like a new ice age, obviously that's not a good thing. Um, I am not feeling really great about the fact that the planet's getting warmer. I don't think that's a wonderful thing. I think it is a far less dangerous thing than if it were getting colder. Um, if the planet were to suddenly shift and go into a cooling period, 
and drop the same amount from where it was at what we would call a median for, let's say, the entire 1900s. If we found the median there and said, well, how much warmer are we than that? You'd actually find that we're not as much warmer as they're leading you. There's a new record high every day. Bullshit. Go look at the high temperatures by state. You'll find the majority of them are still from the 1930s. That means it was higher this day than it's ever been on this day since we started paying attention to this day in the records. All right, so it's it's just not to the level they say it is, but it is getting warmer. And anybody that says it's not getting warmer doesn't remember winter in the 1980s. I mean, so I'm not saying I've never said it's not getting warmer. I'm just saying it's not your freaking CO2 that's making it warmer. It's things like solar cycles and shifting cycles of the Earth's uh, angle to the sun. These things have dramatic effects on, on the planet uh, and its ability to warm or cool. And say what you want about the Mayans and all the hysteria around there, but the fact that there could be something to planetary temperature changes that coincide with galactic alignment and particles striking the, the atmosphere, certainly minor changes of one or two degrees, that's not out of the realm of possibilities in a natural cycle either. So, yeah, why, I don't know. I don't think it's CO2. I have real credible science behind why I don't think it's CO2. It's the CO2 saturation limit or the diminishing effect of CO2 on UV light. And once you reach a certain point, it do, it's like freaking, it doesn't really matter anymore. And we're past that point. I've been past that point a long time. All right, so... I won't go any deeper into that. I try to stay off of this subject anymore. I've said what I have to say. I, I've, you know, unless some kind of new real research comes up, I'm done with it. But anybody that thinks that the, the climate shifting is not a threat to mankind is just a fool, regardless of why. Obviously, if the climate shifts, we have all types of things to contend with. I think the bigger problem that we have from an agricultural standpoint, which is the one that we hear the most about, is modern agricultural practices. I wonder, as bad as they say the drought was this year, and by the way, a listener took and checked out my claim that the drought this year is not as bad as the drought the year before and found out I was absolutely correct. That there was one minor exception in one part of California that I'm dead on, that the drought this year is nowhere near as bad as the drought last year, even though they're telling you it's worse. Okay, But let's say the drought this year. So we look at that um, and we say, well... Why, if it's not as bad as it was the year before, why does it seem to wipe out more crops this year? Well, is it something to do with the degrading quality of the soil? And then two consecutive droughts with that degraded soil, even one that's not as bad as the previous year, has a more defined effect on the land's carrying capacity overall. What is the difference between sterilized, sanitized, fertilized, chemicalized soil and two feet of deep humus in withstanding a drought. So if we're concerned about climate change, then what we should be focusing on from the ability to feed ourselves is restoring the soils. If we restore the soils and the biological life in the soils, then we have more plants and trees and everything else. So it's not just restoring the soils of our farmlands, which drastically needs to be done, but just restoring the soils and restoring our woodlands as well, because one of the greatest rainmakers in the world are the forests that we're cutting down. So regrowing forests, stopping the process of desertification. You want man-made climate change, go look at farming. Farming has done more, especially, and as bad as we are, in certain parts of the world, even worse, has done more to alter the climate than any amount of exhaling will ever do. 
And whether or not that actually transcends into the planet getting warmer, I don't know, but I doubt it. But it certainly transcends into that area not being able to deal with a climatary shift, be it warm or cool. So if you want to address this problem, then we have to address putting the earth back into natural systems because here's the thing. Well, it's, 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 the ice hasn't been, uh, uh, this, this retracted for a million years. If you're even right about that, what did it a million years ago? There was, there was, there was no factories and, and cars and, and things like that. So what did it a million years ago? What, why was the ice that retracted a million years ago? Well, you're just trying. No, I'm not trying. No, seriously, I want to know because I, maybe that's what's doing it now. And then what happened next? What happened next? Did it start? Did it, did it continue to retract at that point? Or did it start to grow? And how far and how fast? How long did it go from that to the reinstatement of an ice age? How did the earth adapt to that climatary shift without us here to be all smart with our books and laboratory rats? How did the earth handle it? Maybe if we figure that out, we can figure out how to handle it. Because let me tell you something, guys. The climate will change, and it will change for generation after generation after generation. And there will always be somebody to stand up and say, we did it. When the, when, the, when the last ice age hit and man was around for it, there were shamans sitting in front of the, the glaciers chanting and saying, we pissed off God, and that's why the glaciers were advancing. Today we have scientists saying we pissed off the planet with CO2 emissions. It's the same crap. It's going to happen. We need to learn to adapt to climatary shift and to restore natural systems so that the earth can deal with it the way that it's done for billions of years without us here to screw it up. Our danger in what we're doing to the planet is not about exhaling CO2 or producing it out of a tailpipe. It's about damaging the land and damaging the natural restorative systems. I firmly believe nothing has done more harm to the environmental movement than the BS around global warming, then global cooling, or global cooling, then global warming, then climate change, then climatary weirdness, and whatever the hell else they come up with next. If they would have left that alone and said, here's how we can fix the planet, more people than you can imagine would be on board with this. Instead, they turned it into a divisive issue. The issue is about restoring the natural processes of the planet. And I could make a huge case for alternative energy and planetary restoration and clean, uh, cleaner technologies and all the things that the environmentalist wants. I can make a case for that to every extreme, to the left extreme, to the right extreme, to the person that will vote for a Republican if it's a dead dog over a Democrat if he was a decent guy and vice versa. I can make a case to everybody for that. I can get buy-in from, from millions and millions of divided people I could bring together under that message. So you have to ask yourself why they didn't do it. Even if they believe it's CO2, even if they really believe it, if you actually want to fix the problem, why? because they don't want to fix the problem, they want to tax carbon. That leaves us to fix the problem. On the alternative uh, energy thing, uh, Steve Harris heard my uh, interview with the guy from DTI Solar, and he wanted to have an opportunity to talk about the good parts about solar. Uh, so I'm going to put him on now uh, for that. So this is going to be Steve Harris on why solar energy is, in fact, a good thing. Hello, everyone, in the Survival Podcast. This is Steve Harris. I've been having a lot of questions from people on solar photovoltaic. 
And I wanted to further address this a little bit with you, especially since Jack just had such a wonderful expert on about using solar photovoltaic um, for preparedness. And people have been writing and says, well, Steve, you don't like solar. Steve, you don't like solar. Actually, Steve Harris does like solar panels, but many times they are a severe distraction. They're a, a gimmick. They're a gizmo. You get fooled by the fancy technology and the shape and the color of the panels. You think it's cool. And you ignore what's underneath your nose first. So that's why I have been kind of pushing down solar is because I wanted you to focus on your car. I wanted you to know that right now, without spending a penny, your car could act as a generator for the majority of the things in your house, and it would do a really good job. Your your car is there all the time. You probably got two of them. And so I, I didn't want to, you know, get you distracted. I wanted you to stay focused and on the point. The same thing with the generators. I mean, look, solar panels don't work when it's cloudy. Solar panels don't work at night. Uh, a generator does work anytime you need to pull the generator. But, again, generator runs on fuel. Solar panel runs from the sun. Uh, so, you know... I, you can look at it as like, damn, I need, you know, power went out, it's middle of the night, my sump pump is, is not, is not working, uh, we need well water and everything else. I wanted you to be focused on that I can use a generator to solve this problem and for you to put it into your own mind exactly what your priorities and your potentials are for your, your backup power systems. You know, I just had a gentleman write to me and said that he wanted some of my recommendations on a small solar photovoltaic and battery system for his house, both run uh, moderate size inverters off of and some direct 12 volt uh, lights and chargers and stuff off of directly off the batteries, just in case the inverter fails. Two is one, one is none. And he said he didn't want to backfeed the grid. He didn't want to power his entire house. He wanted something to provide him with a moderate amount of usable power for his small electronics, his TV, his iPad, his phone, recharge his communications, recharge AA batteries, run headlamps, etc. Good stuff. My advice to him was, before you go off and get a solar power system that will provide you with many months and maybe even a year of really good power, before you go off and spend this one, two, three, four, five, six, seven hundred dollars, you gotta have the food and water first. I mean, there's no sense in looking at something that'll power your house for months and months and months when you have a car that'll power your house for seven days and you only have less than a week's worth of food. So before you go off and look at spending on the nice flashy and cool stuff like solar panels, which can, when used right, are a very good tool for preparedness, I'd recommend you look at what's going to kill you first, okay? And that's the 333333 uh, scenario. What will kill you in 30 days? Well, no food will kill you in 30 days. What will kill you in three days? Not having water will kill you in three days. What will kill you in three hours? Drastic exposure and overheating and dehydration to the sun can kill you in quickly as up to three hours, especially if you're in the desert exerting and in a stressful situation. 
what can kill you in three minutes? Not breathing can kill you in three minutes. What can incapacitate you in 30 seconds to 30 minutes and possibly even kill you within 30 seconds to 30 minutes? And that is exposure to cold. Okay. So your first, your first priority is your mobile, your mobile portable shelter. That's your clothing. So you got to make sure you've got clothing adequate for yourselves so you can withstand three seconds to 30 minutes of cold weather. You know, three seconds would get you if you got immersed in 28 degree water. Okay. I should say 30 seconds would not three seconds. Uh, but you get my point. Then you need to make sure you got what will kill you in three days. You got to have enough water. You got to make sure what will kill you in 30 days. You got to have enough food. Now that you're at the 30 day level, okay, and you're beyond the gasoline that would be in your car and everything. Now I would suggest that you take the expert advice of people that Jack has had on the shows, uh, regarding solar photovoltaic. Uh, take my advice on it. You're free to write me questions. And this is the appropriate time where I think it'll work for you. So with that mentioned, I just wanted to add this little bit of clarity from the expert panel back to you guys because, I mean, I really respond to you guys. You guys write the questions, and I just have to put out the answers. Well, with that said, this is Steve Harris saying thank you very much. Well, great input from Steve Harris. I know we're going really long today. This might be like a two-hour-plus show. Um, but I might need to take a, a day off next week to finish up on episode 1000 of Revolutions 2.0 video. So if so, you break this one in half, uh, you'll get a lot. But this is turning into a really deep show. Uh, I get really behind on the calls. I'm trying to put out more. So we're going to take a few more. Let's go ahead and take another one right now. Hey, Jack. Um, I am in the process of uh, learning how to hunt squirrels. And in an urban situation in which there's the residences around and I'm using an air rifle, uh, what are the best ways to ensure there's no collateral damage? Um, and and what are the best way, ways to approach squirrel in a, in a city environment? Um, well, like any other projectile weapon, the best way to ensure you don't have collateral damage is to know what the hell you're doing, be able to hit your target and know your backstop and what, or what's behind your target with some caveats. Um, if you were to be shooting at a squirrel in a tree at a 45 degree angle up in the air with a 22 long rifle in an urban environment, that round is going to go somewhere. And when it comes down, it's still quite dangerous. It really is. Um, it's going to come down with quite a bit of velocity and, uh, it can come down up to a mile away or more and do damage and possibly even lethal damage to somebody. The odds are much lower than people would lead you to believe, but the possibilities there. So it would be completely inherently reckless behavior to take a, an angled shot in the air where that round could descend down into any kind of populated area. That's, you know, you wouldn't want to do that. So. What does that mean, though, for a pellet gun? It means absolutely nothing. Uh, a pellet, whether it's 177 or 22, that takes that same trajectory by, it fall, by the time it falls, it's lost its velocity. It has almost no energy left. If you were standing somewhere far enough away where that pellet landed on you, it'd be like being hit by a single straight pellet from a shotgun at 150 yards in a dove field, which anybody that's ever been out dove hunting uh, with large groups of people knows it happens all the time. 
And it's just not a bit, it just doesn't matter. It just doesn't have the weight, the velocity, the retained energy to do any damage to anything at that range. So if you're taking aerial shots, as long as we avoid the potential for ricochet, you, you, you've got almost no potential for collateral damage as long as there's nothing back there. Likewise, if we're taking a shot of an animal on the ground, uh, and that, that pellet's gonna hit the ground, it's just, it, it's just not going anywhere. And pellets, unlike BBs, have a very low recoil uh, potential. If you shoot a pellet into a rock, it just kind of flattens out. It doesn't really go anywhere. It might, it might bounce a little bit, but it's not really going anywhere. A BB, a BB's dangerous. If you're going to let your kids shoot air rifles uh, and, and you've decided that they're responsible enough to let them do it on their own, uh, you know the old, you'll shoot your eye out with a BB gun? It's a hell of a lot more likely with BBs than pellets. That steel ball bounces. Right. I mean, take, if you want to just get a feel for it, hold a pellet up about a foot off of a hard table and drop it, and then hold a, a BB up about a foot off a table and drop it. You can see the difference. So sticking with pellets is another way. Uh, making good, consistent shots. And the other thing I will advise you of is to make sure that you're not breaking any laws. I don't know how squirrel is regulated in your state. In some places, squirrel is all but a varmint. I mean, it's no one cares if you shoot them, or they're a game animal that requires a hunting license, but the season is like, you know, something like, you know, uh, you know, June first to May thirty first, right? So it's year round, or there's only short seasons where they're protected. In other places, squirrel is a legitimate game animal as far as the game department's concerned, and may only have a six or eight week window of a season. So you need to know your local laws. Uh, including discharge of an air rifle in your area in this suburban setting. Is that considered illegal? Are you going to get visit from John Law? If so, are you going to be right or wrong? And if it's, if it is legal, uh, then you might want to get a statement from somebody that you can hand to them and go, see, it's legal here, right? You also may want to be really careful about upsetting your neighbors. Even if it's legal, doesn't mean they won't call and bitch, and it doesn't mean the police might not show up and go, even though it's legal, we don't want you doing it. You got it, right? If anything happens around here, we're going to come talk to you. If there's a window out anywhere, we're going to say you did it. You could get that kind of bully treatment. So, you know, working with versus against your neighbors is probably a good idea. As far as the best way to approach them, uh, quietly, but uh, if you can't shoot squirrels in a suburban area, you can't shoot them in a wild area. Suburban squirrels are stupid. Um, if you just wanted meat, and again, I don't know if this violates anybody's local law, so you got to check it, a big pile of black oil sunflower in an area where you can shoot safely and let nature take its course would be the easiest way to do it. I've done this. I had a real problem with squirrels doing a lot of damage to my peach crop in Texas, and I was able to take out a lot of squirrels with a good old-fashioned Beeman pellet gun. It never seemed to bother the neighbors. One of the ways that I kept the situation quelled down in a suburban area with neighbors that aren't very smart, that probably would have complained a lot if they really knew what was going on, was taking shots from inside the house so that most of the noise of the piston was actually inside my home versus outside, and they weren't watching me walk around with a gun. And with solar screens... You got it? They don't really see what's going on either. All you know, the squirrel just twists and, and he's done, right? So, uh, it's up to you how you take it from there, but those are just my thoughts on the entire issue. Please be careful with legal liability here, though. 
Just because you think a squirrel is nothing but a varmint doesn't mean that's what your game department thinks. And just because you believe that it's legal to discharge an air rifle uh, in a suburban area in your city doesn't mean that your city law and code agrees with that. And even if it does say that, doesn't mean you won't have law officers that don't know their own law. And it's important that you do and that you don't argue with them, that you defuse the situation. You say you agree. What they're all, almost always going to do is say, I'm not going to write you a ticket. I'm going to cut you a break because they don't know what to write the ticket for. And they're going to tell you to go in the house and not to do it again. And then you pick the phone up. You contact that police department. You ask to speak to, to someone in charge, the chief or, or one of the assistant chiefs or something. Say, your officer is just out of here. I don't believe I'm in violation of the law. I'd like you to don't argue with the cop. He'll find a reason to do something if you do. If you're asked to, to cease and desist, you know what? By the time he's there, the squirrels are gone anyway. Say okay and then take it up the chain or take it through a court system. Arguing it with cops in the field is generally a stupid idea, and it generally results in ruining your day, if not your night, to boot. All right, let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Jim in Tennessee. I've been a long-time listener and never ask any questions on this think line. Um, this is a two-part question, and it relates to my wife and myself having to eat a low-carb diet, she particularly for being a diabetic, and it's hard to store things like fresh meat and vegetables. I'd like your um, ideas on what would work best for long-term storage for that kind of food where you're eating a low-carb diet. And secondly, do you have any suggestions for refrigeration using, like, solar power or anything like that that would be more reliable when things go off-grid. As always, thanks for your thoughts, and I really appreciate your show. Bye-bye. Right, well, I've done entire shows on this, but i just like to point out that somehow, in the not-so-distant past, before the advent of refrigeration and climate-controlled buildings, that somehow people uh, made meat and fat and protein a very big part of their diet. And they did it without refrigeration. All we have to do is look at how we did it. Well, one of the main things that we did was we canned meat. So just like you can pressure can just about anything, you can pressure can meat. Uh, we pressure can stuff. We pressure can soups. So chicken soup, chicken, uh, carrot, celery, parsley, garlic, right? Can it up, do it, and you've got something much better than Campbell's could ever offer. And how do you do chicken soup paleo? Leave the noodles out. Right? You can can beef, you can can chicken, you can can pork, you can can deer meat, you can can bacon. If it's meat and you pressurize it long enough with a high enough temperature, it's stored. And there you go. So that's, that's number one. Um, the next thing that I would advise you is learn to make jerky and biltong. So that kind of takes care of the meat. And then realize that almost every typical vegetable out there Uh, other than your most of your, your white root vegetables, with parsnips being an exception, is okay on paleo. So even sweet potato in moderation. So we've got sweet potato. That stores pretty well in a root cellar. Uh, we don't necessarily, or, or just, we can actually store those in the ground to a degree in certain climates. Uh, we can look at beets. We can look at parsnips. We can look at carrots, right? All of those. Uh, many of those can be pickled, lacto-fermentated, uh, or canned. Right, So those are all methods of storing them that don't require highly intensive refrigeration. They're all okay on the paleo diet. We can grow greens 
almost year-round. We have to change what we're growing, when we're growing it, and where we're growing it. So sometimes we might have to put up a little greenhouse to be able to do some of our greens effectively outside in the deepest part of the winter. Spinaches, lettuces, chards, beet greens, mustards, collards, stuff like that. All paleo, we can grow that all year-round. So the leaf stuff doesn't store as well, but we can have it fresh. right? So it's not really that hard. Cheese, right? Uh, there's some really great uh, opportunities out there to uh, to buy canned cheese. Uh, I can't remember. Red Feathers one, and there's another that we bought a case of. I'll put a picture up online probably next week where TSA stole one of my cans of cheese out of my case of cheese I brought back from the Self-Reliance Expo. So cheese, paleo food, as far as I'm concerned, remember, I'm not a Rob Wolf purist. I am all about how few carbohydrates in it and stay away from gluten as much as possible. Right, So I kind of have a hybrid of a lot of the different angles, and my thing is, could you eat it raw? Right, So, you know, beans, broccoli, these can be dehydrated, they can be canned, they can be flash frozen. So the reality is all you need to do is sit down and look at what you eat and say, how do I convert this to something that's storable? We can make, you know, you can get into curing your own bacon and hams and things like that. And dry cured, they actually store very well without refrigerant. That's, again, why they were created in the first place. This has a tremendous component to it of whether you live in the south or the north as well. Uh, storage temperatures, especially through the fall, the winter, and the spring in the north, uh, with even something like just a basic basement or cellar, are generally really good for a lot of these things that aren't complete, you know, canned or biltonged or jerked. Um, these fermented things and, and, and different aspects of things, where in the South you have a little bit more of a challenge there. As for how to deal with having a refrigerator or freezer, I would just recommend that you tune into the episode we just had uh, with a gentleman from DTI Solar. I'll put a link in today's show notes to that episode for you. Let's take a uh, another one. I think we got two more and we're going to be done for the day. Actually, we got one more and we are out for this extra long episode of TSP. Hey, Jack, this is Dave in New York. I was just wondering about your thoughts on libertarian candidate Gary Johnson. Uh, he seems to have some experience as a two-time governor in New Mexico and uh, how he stacks up to Ron Paul. Thanks, and keep up the good work. Bye. How does Gary Johnson compare to Ron Paul? Um There's some differences. Johnson's for making the Federal Reserve completely transparent. Paul's for phasing out the Federal Reserve and getting rid of it altogether. I mean, there's a key difference, but either would be better than what we have now. Um, here's the reality about Gary Johnson, whom I will st start right off saying I will probably vote for. I guess I will vote for is the only way I can say it. I don't know what else I would do at the presidential level. I can't vote for one of the other two traitors, and I don't believe Johnson's a traitor, so I'll vote my conscience. Um, Johnson will not win. Nothing could make Johnson win. I, I am completely and totally aware of that. And you say, well, then why waste your vote? Because first of all, it's not a wasted vote. The state that I'm in when I vote is going to go the way that it's going to go. If every single person that listened to this show moved here right now, registered to vote here right now, all 45,000 of you, we wouldn't swing this state. Right? So my vote for a Mitt Romney is simply a vote to endorse a man that I find to be not worthy of being president of the United States. Does that mean I believe he's... Yeah. Is he more worthy than Barack Obama? Yeah, probably. If you if you live in a swing state and you believe in the paradigm, 
by all means, vote for Mitt Romney. If you don't live in a swing state, though, why not vote your conscience is, is the way that I'll put it. Um, but what is a vote for Gary Johnson? A vote for Gary Johnson is a vote for the Libertarian Party to be recognized as a party and treated as a party in the United States of America. If they can get a significant portion of the vote, say 10% for two election cycles, they get federal funding and they have to be allowed into debates and things like that. So that's, that's what a vote for Johnson is. It's not a vote to win. Uh, for Gary to win. And, and this is why, if you look at his platform and go, I agree with 85% of it, but I don't like this, you shouldn't even care. Because I guarantee you there's plenty of stuff you don't like with the other guys that you would. Well, I've had people do that, you know, with the third-party candidate. But he has this one, I'm, he's not going to win anyway. You're voting for the party to be recognized as the third choice and to legitimize it. That's what you're doing. Now, I want to take this opportunity at the end of today's show to explain something that people don't seem to understand. Whenever I post anything or state anything or do anything or post a political cartoon that basically says that you're going to get the same thing from Obama and Romney, the discussion must go into a point of absolute stupidity about how Gary Johnson doesn't have a chance or they can't write in Ron Paul because that won't help at all or just some other stupid thing. Here's the thing. Um, until this question was brought up, how much have you heard me talk about Gary Johnson for six months other than to say once Paul is out, out that I would probably vote for him as an aside here and there? How much have you even heard me talk about Ron? I actually had Ron Paul supporters angry with me that I wasn't talking about Ron Paul more during the election. I'm like, he's not going to win, right? And this is the important thing, and I want you to understand what I'm telling you when I tell you there's no difference And people say, well, but Romney was successful in business and Obama wasn't. Ugh, come on. There's no difference in the policies that you're going to get and the future of your country. You're going to get basically the same thing. Well, the Supreme Court, yeah, look what Roberts did to you. Roberts kicked you in the nuts, conservatives. Dead square. Dead square. I called him a traitor for it. And then most of you defended him. Think about that. Okay. Really, think about this. Well, the Second Amendment, Heller DC's happened. It's happened. There's new issues for the court now. And they're still going to come down and kick you in the nuts. There's going to be issues of the main things the courts are going to decide in the next 10, 20 years are going to be civil liberties. Whether or not they have a right to put a drone over your house and take a picture of you taking a dump on your toilet with imaging that will be capable of doing it in the next few years. That's what they're going to be deciding. Whether or not a person could be deemed a terrorist and assassin, oh, they already did that. Can we do it on U.S. soil? That's what they'll be deciding. You need to think about that. And I'm telling you, no matter who you elect, this is what you're going to get. And why I'm telling you is not to sway who you vote for. I'm going to say something I know many of you have a very hard time accepting today. I don't give a flying shit who you vote for. I don't care. I'm not trying to convince you of anything about who to vote for when I say to expect the same thing. This show is not called the political podcast. The Fight Obama team to get Romney elected, to take back our nation with the ballot box podcast. It's called the Survival Podcast. It's concerned with making sure that you're prepared. 
I don't want you to alter your preparedness strategy when Romney wins in November, which I think he will. This is going to be closer than anybody on either side really is going to want to admit in the end. But if you, if I had to bet money, if you had a gun to my head and said there's $10,000 of your own money right there, you have to make a wager in Vegas or I'm going to shoot you in the head. It's not worth the 10 grand, uh, to, and I might win, right? And you said, we well, might as well pick who you think is going to win. I think Romney will win. And when that happens, I don't want you going, oh, happy days are here again. Oh, it's all going to be okay now. I want you to know something. You're going to get screwed. The police state's going to advance. American imperialism overseas is going to continue to advance. Our meddling in other countries' affairs will continue to advance. Restrictions on your rights and liberties will continue to advance. Oppression of America's health care system and a march toward government health care will continue under Romney. The appointment of judges who will crap on the Constitution, they'll just crap on it on a different side of it. All right? And the key is, in some ways, the side you're so worried about, that's been done. Cases don't generally come back to the Supreme Court very often. It's very rare. Once or twice in the history of the nation, the Supreme Court has re reversed its own decision. And I don't want you to think that a victory for one changes anything for you. You want to support one? Go ahead. I don't care. It won't matter. You want to be a pawn? Be a pawn. Just be a prepared pawn. That's all I'm saying. This is a, this is a heartfelt appeal for me here, from me here to you today. That when you hear me and many other libertarian-minded individuals telling you that you're going to get the same thing, they don't care who you vote for. They're not under, uh, me and, and all these other people, we're not under any illusion that we believe Gary Johnson, Gary Johnson knows Gary Johnson can't win. But Gary Johnson wants a few million Americans who feel like they have no choice to feel like, yeah, you know what, I do have a choice. I can make a point. Oh, what happens if, see, and that's where we, that's where you lose us. What happens if? The same thing happens. Same thing happens. How much different has Obama been than Bush? Hasn't Obama continued almost every Bush policy, including the things he promised, campaigned on by getting rid of? Patriot Act. Quote from Barack Obama, I can undo it with the stroke of a pen. Not done. Not happened. Not going to happen. Renewed under Barack Obama. You know? Many things that that was said about. The march toward a police state continued, and all the people that supported Obama and hated Bush because of the march toward a police state under Bush, have turned a blind eye while Barack Obama does the same thing, while the NDAA passes, while the NDAA passes under a Republican-controlled House of Representatives. Let me ask you guys a question and think there'd be a real difference. Do you think George Bush Jr. would have signed the NDAA into law? If you say no, you are lying to yourself. Do you think Mitt Romney would have signed the NDAA into law if he were president? Do you think John McCain would have signed the NDAA into law if he were president? <laughs> there you go. So when I tell you it's not going to matter, I'm not telling you they're the same person as in personality and viewpoint and whatever. I'm telling you that they're going to be the same as executives in the big picture things for this country. We will continue into debt, no matter which one of them is president, By 2016, the U.S. national debt will be $22 trillion. 
If either one of them makes the deficit go down, they will tell you they reduced the debt while the debt grows. Our unfunded obligations right now, U.S. unfunded future obligations are over $222 trillion. That's money that the government has to come up with that they have no idea where they're going to get it, even under the best circumstances. Be prepared. Be prepared no matter who's president. Don't think you're buying time. This is what I hear all the time. Well, we've got to do this to buy time. What are you buying time for? If you're not if you're not cutting down the, the 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 massive debt load, if you're not slowing down the police state, what time do you think you're buying? You're not buying. There is no buying of time. We'll elect Romney and hold his feet to the fire. Please tell me how. How are you going to do that? Well, you know he'll he'll have to worry about staying in. All of you people that say that will vote for him next time too, no matter who's running against him. You know you will, because whoever they bring up will be a socialist and the most liberal senator or most liberal governor or most liberal whatever of all time, and it will be the most important election of our lifetime yet again. And you'll say we have to buy time until we can find someone new on the Republican side. We can't. You're not going to buy time. You're not going to hold anybody's feet to the fire. You want to be politically active? Look outside your window. Figure out who your town councilman is. Your, your, your city mayor, your school board. You want to be politically active and you want to make a difference? That's where you're going to make a difference. And then we turn around and we see the turnout for many local elections is 10%, and the turnout for a presidential election is 50 to 60%. There's a reason that they have you paying attention to the shiny little silver ball that is the federal election. And you go and you vote on election day when you show up for the big election, the midterms or the prime or the, the main, you know, presidential election, either one, and you look down the list of all those people in your town, all those local positions, and be honest with me, how many of you go, I don't know who any of these people are other than I saw their names on signs on the side of the street, and I always vote Democrat, so I might as well vote Democrat, or I always vote Republican, I might as well vote Republican. And you're so vested in this thing. You don't even know who's running your city, your town, your county. I know some of you do, and good for you. And if you're still, and if that's you and you're really vested in the presidential thing, then I'll eat crow for you. The rest of you, bullshit. You think you're making a difference? You think you're making a difference while you're letting people you don't even know run your schools? You don't even know their names? You think you're, you're, you're making a difference? When I guarantee you, if you really look at it, go ahead on election day, look at it and see if there's not positions that you're voting for in your local count or county government or state government. You don't even know what the position does. And you're worried about Romney or Obama. You want to take it back? Take back your backyard first. Build a fortress around it. Turn it around and shove it up the ass of the federal government from the local level up and do it everywhere. That's what they don't want you to do. Because let me tell you something about what happens when that starts to happen at a local level. All of a sudden, the people that you think you hate, you find that you agree with a lot more than you thought you did. You start realizing that Democrats are just people, too, that have believed a different side of the dichotomy. But when it comes down to real tangible things that you can see going around in your backyard... You guys will agree on 80 to 90% of it. Work on that. Work on it at a local level and prepare for the worst at a global and federal level economically, and politically, and police state-wise. Because it doesn't matter who you elect, that's who's coming. That's what I mean when I tell you that. For the love of God, please understand, I'm not asking you to vote for anybody. 
And I would really appreciate it if when I posted something that talked about this, you want to make your case, go ahead. But if you bring in, voting for a third party won't do anything, you're just clueless. You're just clueless. You have no idea what I'm talking about. Not once have I ever told anybody on this show, you should go vote for anything. Not once in print have I said, you should go vote for anything. The only thing I've ever told anybody is to vote your conscience. And if your conscience is, I don't really like Romney, but in my conscience, he's better for Obama, and I'm doing what I can within the guidelines of my conscience, do it. Just don't deceive yourself into the reality of what it's going to be. And those of you that live outside of the swing states, if you're going to go ahead and endorse somebody you don't like because he's the lesser of two evils, ask yourself what statement you're making. Are you really making a statement? If you live in Texas, do you make a bigger statement by voting for a third party or voting for Mitt Romney? Romney's going to carry Texas. Let's not deceive ourselves. They won't even, they're not even going to spend any money there. Neither campaign is. They know. It's not going to happen. So what statement are you making? How are you fighting for your country? Even if you believe I, he's the less, he's, he's much better than Obama. Don't like, if, if you actually looked at a Gary Johnson and said, I really think he'd be a better president, then which one makes a bigger statement? I'm just challenging you to ask yourself the question. If you still think the answer's Mitt Romney, vote for him. If you think the answer's writing in Mickey Mouse, write in Mickey Mouse. One citizen in a free republic should not tell another citizen how to vote. Or tell another citizen, we have to do this. No, you have to do what you think is right. I have to do what I think is right. And here's the thing some of you little dandelions need to get understood. You're not being insulted when you're disagreed with. You're not being talked down to when you're disagreed with. When you post something and say, I just think you're wrong, Jack, and here's five reasons. And I go, no, I think you're wrong. You're not disrespected. You're respected enough to be responded to. Think about that. If I tell you I don't give a shit who you vote for, I haven't cussed you out. I've told you the truth. I'm trying to make you understand. I don't care. I don't care who you vote for. It's not my right to care who you vote for. I want you to vote your conscience. And it just amazes me that some of you get angry when I tell you to vote your conscience. That probably means you're having a conflict with your conscience, not me. And in the end, the big thing I want you to take away from this, be prepared for the worst. Be prepared for the worst when it comes to the economic policy and the police state policies of your nation because they're coming no matter who's in charge. That doesn't mean we can't win. That doesn't mean we can't fight back. That doesn't mean we can't make a difference. But start doing it and start doing it in your own backyard. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. 
Shine is you.